Exodus 24, 1 through 11. This is the word of our God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. Ends the reading of the words, Lord. This ends the reading of the word of the Lord this morning. Let's pray uh, and ask Him to bless it. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would uh, illumine our hearts, that you would bring it to us, that you would show us your majesty, that you would show us yourself through your son, Jesus. Lord, forgive us when we come in error. We pray that you would uh, illumine our hearts, that everything that we believe about you would be led by your word. Lead us, Lord, to the rock that is Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So I promise this is not my normal voice. Um, I got sick this week, so it's a little bit, a little bit funky. Um, but as we come to this passage, uh, there's something to remember. And the thing to remember is that in our, in our catechisms and all the other things in our, our uh, tradition in the OPC and the Reformed denominations, we confess that Jesus Christ, or that, sorry, we confess that God is spirit. And we confess that God is spirit. And we confess that he is omnipresent, which means that God cannot be contained and God cannot be barricaded out. Uh, but because he's spirit, that also means that he is ordinarily uh, invisible. God is ordinarily invisible. Or to put it another way, God does not have a physical body. Uh, but that hasn't stopped God from revealing himself visibly uh, throughout history in various ways. Uh, in Genesis 15, God appeared as a smoking fire pot and as a burning torch passing through the, the, the animals that were cut in half while Abraham snoozed. Uh, in the book of Exodus, God appeared to Moses as a burning bush. And then he led Israel out of Egypt uh, in the pillars of fire and the pillars of cloud. And then when we came to the Mount Sinai, God appeared visibly uh, in smoke and fire, cloud and darkness. In each of these appearances, notice how God often uh, hides or cloaks his presence by smoke or by cloud or by darkness. Especially on the mountain Sinai, uh, God's presence is hidden and it's terrifying. Right? God's presence is, is so visceral that Israel recoils. They step back from the mountain because of the thunder and the lightning and the fire uh, and the, the horn blasts of unseen angel armies. Everything about God's presence on the mountain screams danger. 
screams, this is dangerous and I don't want to touch it. That God's presence is terrifying. Which makes these three verses, verses 9 through 11, uh, in the middle of chapter 24, all the more startling. Here is Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel ascending this mountain of fire and thunder and smoke. And when they ascend, what do they find? They see God. They don't see him hidden by smoke, not obscured by cloud. They see God directly. And what they see is completely unlike how God has revealed himself in the past. They see him in heavenly glory standing upon a pavement of pure, clear sapphire. And not only do they not die when they see him, but they eat and they drink in his presence. So whatever they were expecting to find on the mountain when they walked up, uh, I doubt that this was it. But even though it's surprising, these three verses are not, will not be the last time something like this happens. These three verses create a pattern. And it's a pattern that will repeat itself in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These verses are a pattern that will repeat themselves in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, as we'll see, Jesus is who makes the invisible God visible. Jesus is the one who unites heaven and earth. And Jesus brings his people near so that they may eat of his covenant meal in his presence. So Jesus makes God visible. Jesus unites heaven and earth. And Jesus brings you near to eat his covenant meal in his presence. So we began reading uh, in verse 1 because this passage begins in verse 1, uh, even though we jumped to nine, verses 9 through 11 as our scripture text. But in verse 1, God says this. He says uh, to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And then uh, a few verses later, verses 9, this is when they obey the command. So in verse 9, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, they go up. They ascend the mountain of God. Despite all the warnings that God had set up, remember that God said, no one shall touch this mountain. No one shall come up it. There shall be barriers, and if anyone touches it, they'll be stoned. And despite the fact even that it was a death sentence, no one wanted to touch the mountain because it was full of fire and smoke uh, and thunder and darkness. And it's to, uh, it's to this mountain that God calls these 74 men to ascend. Uh, and what do they find when they enter the cloud, when they enter the darkness and the fire and the smoke? Verse 10, they saw the God of Israel. Now, uh, it's easy to skim these few verses because they're short and there's not a lot of details. But how can someone just see God? First of all, that's supposed to be impossible, right? God is spirit. He's invisible. Uh, and second of all, later in Exodus, God says in Exodus 33 to Moses, man shall not see me and live. So according to God himself, to see God is a death sentence. And that's why God obscured himself with smoke and cloud to, to protect the people. So they wouldn't see him directly and die and perish. 
And not only that, but then Paul later in the New Testament says in 1 Timothy 6, he says that God dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen, nor can they see. God obscures himself because he would, it would, whoever saw him would have to die, and also because God dwells in unapproachable light. That Paul says, no one can see God because of the glory of his being. He's so radiant and bright and perfect and holy and glorious that no one can look at him and no one can see him. And in fact, Paul says, no one has ever seen him. So how come Exodus 24 says they saw God? Right, it may just have been for a moment in verse 10, they see the God of Israel, but it's, it's almost like they see God and then their gaze immediately drops to his feet. They immediately look away and they look at his feet and it says there was under his feet as it were a pavement of sapphire stone. However, it says they saw God. Twice it says that. First in verse 10 and then in verse 11. They did not, he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and they ate and they drank. So not only do they see God, but they don't die. So how can, it, how can this be that they saw God without dying, even though God says man can't see him without dying, and Paul says that no one has ever seen God? How can both be true? Well, the answer is not found in this passage. The answer is found in John 12, 45, where Jesus says this, Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. In Colossians 1, 15, he, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. In other words, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, He is the image of the invisible God, which, is, which means that He is the one who makes the invisible God visible. The Son of God is the one who makes the invisible God visible. So who did Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders see on the mountain? They saw the image of the invisible God. They saw the Son of God the second person of the Trinity. That's how they could behold God and not die. Because the Son of God, the mediator between God and man, the one who makes God visible, he stood there and showed himself to them. Now, as we said in, this, in the intro, these verses are a pattern. The pattern is that the invisible God delights to reveal himself to his people through his son. And this is how he has always done things and how he always will do things. This is the pattern that God, though he is invisible, reveals himself through his son, the image of the invisible God. And this pattern is fulfilled ultimately and finally in the life of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has, has always been the image of the invisible God. But when Jesus came and lived on this earth, he took on flesh. He became visible in a whole new way. Not a new kind of way. God is, Jesus has always been making God visible. But when he took on flesh, he made God visible in an entirely surprising and more amazing way. Because now, to Jesus, when you look at Jesus, you see God. And not only that, but when Jesus talks, you hear his voice. That Jesus took on flesh so that his people could see him face to face. So that his people could hear his voice. So that his people could to touch him. 
and hug him and be in his presence. Jesus makes God visible. But here's the best part. Jesus' incarnation was not temporary. When the Son of God willingly became human, he did so not for a short time, but for eternity. Jesus will always have a human body. Which means that one day, Jesus is going to return, and he's going to return bodily, and physically, and visibly. Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. So in this way, Exodus 24-10 uh, is something that you will experience one day. One day, you will see God. One day, you will not see God obscured by clouds and smoke or darkness. You will see Jesus in the radiance of his glory, face to face. And you will get to touch him. And you will get to hug him. And you will get to hear his voice. And you will get to be with him visibly, physically, bodily for eternity. And if you belong to him, you will not die when you see him. But by his grace, you will live forever in his presence. So now, while we aren't given any details about what they saw in Exodus 24, we do get details about something else. So, Jesus makes God visible. That's part of the pattern. But as the 74 men ascend the mountain of God, while they're ascending, they see God, and then they see under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Now notice it says that, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone. Uh, put it another way, they see something like a pavement of sapphire stone. Uh, you heard this in, uh, uh, I think it was our call to worship this morning in Ezekiel. Our Ezekiel keeps saying, I saw something like this. I saw something in the appearance of, or in the likeness of. This happens often when scripture is describing spiritual things with earthly images. Scripture des describes spiritual things with earthly images and says, it's like this. But it only says it's like this because how can you describe spiritual heavenly things with, with earthly language? Earthly things, earthly images fall far short of reality. So when the prophet describes things this way, he's saying he's seeing things beyond human understanding. And he's just like, this is what I got. This is the language I have to describe what I saw. But what they're, what's happening is, is Moses and, and everybody else, uh, they're getting a glimpse into heaven. They're getting a glimpse into God's heavenly sanctuary. And it is paved with sapphire. Now, sapphire shows up a few times in Scripture. And almost every time sapphire shows up, it's part of God's heavenly sanctuary. We heard it in our call to worship that the, the throne of God had the appearance of sapphire. The sapphire is part of God's throne. It's part of his heavenly sanctuary. So this means that as Moses and the gang are ascending the mountain, they're ascending into the heavenly realm. Now, uh, by heavenly, I don't want you to get confused, I don't mean the afterlife. Uh, I mean that our universe is more than three-dimensional. For one, angels exist. 
And we can't ordinarily see angels uh, because they are heavenly beings. They're heavenly, they're spiritual. Because there's, there's a veil between the earthly realm and the heavenly realm preventing us from seeing uh, into that other realm. Sometimes God lifts that veil, which is what's happening in Exodus 24. God lifts the veil, the barrier, the curtain between earth and heaven so that Moses and all, the, all his friends can see into heaven and see God's heavenly sanctuary and see him standing there with sapphire pavement. And this is not the first time God has ever done this, and this will not be the last time God ever does this. In fact, this happens lots of times throughout Scripture where God lifts that curtain temporarily so that people, usually prophets, can see or behold visions of heaven. In fact, that word to behold uh, is in verse 11, right? They beheld God in verse 11. That's a prophetic word. It's the same word when a prophet beholds a vision. It's a prophetic word. It means that they're seeing a vision. Now, when you hear the word vision, and you may think that I mean a hallucination. And that's not what I mean. A vision is not a hallucination, and it's not a vivid dream. A vision is not something happening in your head. A vision is when the, that curtain between earth and heaven is lifted, and you get to see creation in all of its fullness. Not just the earthly physical parts, but you get to see all of creation, the heavenly realms. Uh, think of Jacob's ladder, Jacob's vision, right, where he sees earth, but then the veil is lifted, the curtain's lifted, and he sees heaven, and he sees a ladder uniting heaven and earth, and angels ascending and descending upon the ladder. That, that he sees heaven and earth linked. And now what was that ladder? John 1.51, And Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heaven opened and angels of God descending and ascending on the Son of Man. That Jesus, in the Gospels, intentionally linked himself to that ladder that links heaven and earth. That Jesus is the one who lifted the curtain so that Jacob could see. And he's the one who, who unites heaven and earth together in himself. And so when Moses and Aaron and all the other guys ascend the mountain, they see the Son of God. They see the one who unites heaven and earth. They see the ladder between heaven and earth. And he, they see him in his sanctuary. The veil, that curtain is lifted. And they see the one who holds all of creation together. So when they see God, they see heaven and earth. And they see it through him. They see him standing upon it. That for a moment, just for a moment, in Exodus 24, heaven and earth are linked by the Son of God. And this will not be the last time that this happens. Uh, in the next chapter of Exodus, Exodus 25, the, the tabernacle, God commands them to build the tabernacle according to the pattern shown them on the mountain. So when did God show them the pattern of the tabernacle? Well, it's Exodus 24, verse 10. The pattern for the earthly tabernacle 
which is to be God's dwelling place on earth, his sanctuary on earth, is to be patterned after what they saw on the mountain. But the tabernacle, and eventually the temple, later, built by Solomon, had one significant design feature. Uh, the Holy of Holies, the innermost chamber of the tabernacle, that was where heaven and earth were united by the presence of the Son of God and the Ark of the Lord. That The Holy of Holies was where heaven and earth were linked. But the problem was, no one was allowed to go in. Except for the high priest, and he could only do it once a year. And the rest of the year, the Holy of Holies, heaven and earth united, was barred by a curtain. Until one day, the curtain was torn in two. And that curtain was torn in two on the day that Jesus died. Because again, like we said, Exodus 24 is a pattern that will be fulfilled in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We've already seen how Jesus fulfills the pattern by making God visible, by taking on flesh. But the second piece of the pattern is that heaven and earth are united through Jesus Christ, specifically by his blood. Because when do Moses and the boys ascend the mountain? They ascend after they have been covered by the covenant blood of the sacrificial animals. That's why we read those previous verses. Because the blood of the covenant had covered them. And then they ascend the mountain. And then they see God in his heavenly sanctuary. They see heaven and earth united. They are brought into that. They are drawn by God into, uh, into heaven. Because the blood covered them. But it was only temporary. Exodus 24, this vision is only three verses. But God's goal was for this pattern to be fulfilled permanently. God's goal is for this pattern of heaven and earth united he wanted that to be fulfilled permanently. This was the original goal of the Garden of Eden. That Adam's role in the garden was to exercise dominion over the entire earth, which meant that Adam's goal was to extend the borders of the garden to the entire world. And the garden was God's heavenly sanctuary. Adam's job was to make all of earth God's heavenly sanctuary. Adam's goal was to unite heaven and earth. But Adam failed. When he sinned, heaven and earth were split apart. Like two continents now drifting apart. And now there's a chasm between the two realms. Now there's a giant gulf between the two. But despite Adam's failures, and despite the gulf that now exists, God's goal never changed. His goal was always to unite heaven and earth permanently. And so he sent his son Jesus to be the second Adam to be the one who would die on the cross as the sacrificial lamb for the sins of the world, thereby making peace between heaven and earth. Therefore, Paul says in, first, in Colossians 1 that Jesus reconciled all things to himself, whether heaven or earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. And that's why the curtain between earth and heaven 
the curtain of the Holy of Holies was torn apart when Jesus died because the barrier between heaven and earth had been torn apart because the chasm had been bridged by the cross. And this means two things. First, it means that everyone now has access to the Holy of Holies. It means that the sanctuary of God is now open to the public through Jesus Christ. That you get to draw near to God. You get to go into God's heavenly sanctuary. You get to be a part of His heavenly sanctuary. You get access to the Father literally anytime you want through the blood of Jesus. You can pray to Him anytime, and God promises that because of Jesus Christ, He will hear your prayer, even though He's in heaven, He will hear you, and He will answer you. And secondly, when that curtain was torn apart, that barrier between heaven and earth removed, it means that God's heavenly kingdom has now broken through into this world. And it is slowly expanding to cover the entire globe just like it would have if Adam hadn't sinned. It is through the gospel that now God's kingdom is being established over all the world. And it won't do it all at once. God's kingdom will not overtake the entire earth all at once, but it will go little by little. Just like how in Exodus 23, God said that he would conquer the land little by little. And the kingdom of heaven is like leaven working its way through the whole lump that, uh, in Matthew 13, 33. But the end, the goal, is that heaven and earth will eventually be completely united in a new creation. And so when Revelation describes the end of this earthly age, John describes it as heaven and earth being finally and fully united as new creation that the heavenly city of Jerusalem is going to break through and descend upon earth. And this heavenly city of Jerusalem is adorned with every kind of precious metal and gem, including sapphire. And there's no temple in that city. Because its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And all this was set in motion by the blood of the cross. Which means that citizenship in this city... To be a part of this new creation is given by grace through faith. Good works will not get you into heaven. Only the blood of Jesus, which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, can unite heaven and earth. Only through the blood of the cross can you be reconciled to Christ and brought into his cosmic plan to unite all things to himself. And what will happen when heaven and earth are finally and fully united by the blood of Jesus? Verse 11. They beheld God and ate and drank. God's goal is to reveal himself to his people through his son Jesus, to unite heaven and earth through the blood of Jesus Christ, and then to draw his people into his presence so that they can eat together. But the meal that God is going to share with his people is not just a regular meal. 
It will be a wedding feast, Revelation says, which means that it will be covenantal and it will be celebratory. Because remember how Moses and the gang came up the mountain after, after the covenant ceremony, after the covenant has been established, after the blood has been spilled, after everyone says, I do, then they come up to the mountain, they come into God's presence, and there they eat and they drink with him. That what happened on Exodus, on the mountain of Sinai in Exodus 24, was they came up and they had a wedding feast. They had a covenant meal with God. This meal then on the mountain in the presence of the Son of God where heaven and earth are united is a covenant meal and that means, a covenant meal means it signs and seals the love and the peace that now exists between God and Israel. It's a wedding feast. It's now a, a celebratory, a celebration of the uniting that has just happened. But as we've said twice now, these verses are a pattern. That means that they have a fulfillment later. That Jesus fulfills this pattern by making God visible in his life forever. And that he unites all things, whether heaven and earth, to himself by the blood of the cross. And then the pattern is that God, in his presence, will eat and drink with his people. A covenant meal. And so that is why when Jesus returns bodily, Revelation says there will be a, a wedding supper, a wedding feast, because it's a covenant feast. Because Jesus, God incarnate, who makes, who makes God visible, who tore apart the curtain between heaven and earth, who himself was the sacrificial lamb, whose blood sealed the new covenant, He's going to throw a big party when he comes back. And that's what Exodus 24 is pointing towards. A God in the flesh, eating a covenantal meal with his people. And so when we come to worship, and when we come to the supper today, this meal is a covenant meal. And it does the same things that Exodus 24 did. Our covenant meal today and the, and the supper signifies the same things because it signifies the love that God has for you and the peace that Christ has, has bought with his blood. That you have peace with God through the blood of Jesus. That you are part of his new creation. You are part of his uniting heaven and earth. But there's something missing. Where is Jesus? Jesus says that he is present with us always by his spirit. But we long one day to eat this meal not here, but with him. Which means that this meal today, this supper that we eat today, is just an appetizer. And the main course is coming. And we will eat it together on that last day in Christ's physical presence in a united heaven and earth. And I know you want to know what that looks like. And I want to know what it looks like too. But I don't think earthly words can describe what that's going to be like when we're in the new creation with Jesus, eating with him. It's going to be better than we imagine. But in the meantime, let's eat. Let's invite the session forward so that we can partake of this meal. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you again for this meal, for this covenant meal and all that it signifies, the peace and the love that we have. Oh Lord, we pray that uh, you would transform us from the inside out, that you would sanctify us, Lord, so that we would look to Christ more and more, so that we would, in anticipation and joy, look forward to the day when he returns. But until then, Lord, help us to live lives uh, glorifying to you on this earth. Uh, that we would love uh, the things that you have given us to do, that we would love each other as you have loved us, that we would joyfully uh, obey and walk before you. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for loving us and saving us. And in Christ's name we pray all of this. Amen.